Sorkin's film is sometimes eloquent and sustained for the most part by his flair for hyperverbal entertainment. It also diminishes its aura of authenticity with dubious inventions and muddles its impact by taking on more history than it can handle. That's Joe Morgenstern of Wall Street Journal, excuse me, The Trial of the Chicago 7, our new featured film this week here on Cinephile, and it is a big week here for Cinephile. 78 episodes on ESPN's platform, 72 episodes now with Cadence 13. That's right, the big 150, a milestone that we never thought would be possible. Uh, my eternal thanks to Pete Genesini, who first gave us the green light despite some opposition among ESPN powers that be, what the hell is this? Where's the sports content? Oh, it's just movies? Okay, what the heck? Dan Stanzik, who volunteered time, sacrificed a lot of effort to make this thing work, but accompanied me to the Oscars. Ben Lyons, who got me to the Oscars. Rick Passmore, Claire Atkins, contributing as well. And of course, everybody here at Cadence 13, not only Chris Corkin, who gave it the green light, but my good friend Joe Engelbrecht, who produces this week in, week out. We're always simpatico, uh, always looking to make this thing work as much as possible. So thank you most of all to all of you for making this work. I never thought 150 episodes of Cinephile, uh, you know, a lifelong movie geek, and I get to just pour out my passions for all of you. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, I can't thank you enough. Coming up here, The Trial of the Chicago 7. Uh, also, uh, Wild Card, which is a documentary about Craig Carton, the uh, formerly disgraced talk show host of uh, The Fan. Uh, who then went to prison for his gambling addiction. Really good HBO documentary. Um, also, we were going to do the Mount Rushmore favorite personal directors because somebody had messaged that to me, so we're finally going to do that. And in honor of number 150, I was, I was saying to Joe off here, you know, normally if it was Colbert or Fallon, you know, they've got these great budgets so they can go through, and here's the best interviews. So, you know, I could have had a collection of Billy Bob Thornton or Margot Robbie or Barry Jenkins or Mahershala Ali, but we don't have that kind of budget or time. So, you know what? I'm just going to show you and replay my favorite interview of all time, of course, one of my favorite actors, the great Robert De Niro. We just discussed the war with Grandpa, and uh, Joe mentioned me off air. He's got a new movie with Zach Braff coming. He's obviously very uh, topical when it comes to politics, the election right around the corner. So my favorite moment of Cinephile, talking to Bob. In case you're new to Cinephile, I don't expect everyone to have listened to all 150. I don't expect all of you who are listening to ESPN to now be listening now. So you know what? If you ever missed it, ever wondered about it, Want to know what my personal highlight was? You can listen to my interview with Robert De Niro. We're going to play it today. Uh, episode number 150. He was born in the film Hands of Stone, by the way, in case you're curious. Uh, before we dive into Aaron Sorkin's latest, thanks once again to all those who seem to really enjoy Glenn Kenny's interview. He was the uh, excellent film critic who wrote Made Men, the story of Goodfellas, which I encourage you all to get currently in bookstores. For those who are listening to the interview, you'll recall at one point I asked him, because in the book he makes an overture about a story involving Martin Scorsese and Liza Minnelli in the Andy Warhol Diaries. And Glenn said, I don't want to say it's too humiliating. I emailed him afterwards and thanked him for not only appearing on Cinephile, but ever the journalist. I said, so what's the story? He sent me a link to thrift shop books for the Andy Warhol diaries and said, it's on page 92. So sleuth that I am, Sherlock Virk. I paid $9.26 for this book I'm currently holding. It is 750 pages, the Andy Warhol diaries. And not to sound like a Neanderthal, but I... I couldn't care less about Andy Warhol or painting or anything like that. It looks like just a lot of stories. When I, when I Googled the book, this is just a ton of gossip. He's just crushing people. For example, on page 93, and I'm going to get to the Scorsese story, but page 93 when I opened it up, this is the first sentence I read. In the afternoon, Edwig, the queen of Paris punk, came down for lunch. She brought a hairdresser guy down with her. She just got married and her husband sent her on a honeymoon, she said. He stayed home. She's a lesbian and he's a fairy. So that's the kind of book we're reading here. Page 92, in case you're as curious as I was, I know my buddy Cabby is waiting on uh, bated breath. He was, his, by the way, I want everyone to take a guess. What is the story that Glenn Kenny would not say because it was too humiliating? 
I was guessing golden showers. My boy Cabby was predicting uh, Marty was blowing Paul McCartney. Joe, would you like to take a guess? before I, I know I've sent you the extra, but let's just play along. What do you think it was that Glenn Kenny wouldn't dare say? Oh, boy. I'm going to say some sort of embarrassing, untimely hospital visit of some sort. <laughs> it's a good guess. He told me lots of gossip. He said that the night before when the doorbell rang, it was Liza Minnelli. Her life's very complicated now. Like she was walking down the street with Jack Haley, her husband, and they'd run into Martin Scorsese, who she's now having an affair with. And Marty confronted her that she was also having an affair with Barishnikov. And Marty said, how could she? The could is italicized. This is going on with her husband, Jack Haley, standing there, exclamation point. And Halston said that it was all true. He also said that Jack Haley wasn't gay. You see? I was right. I didn't think so. Halston said Jack likes Liza, but that what he really goes for is big, curvy, blonde women. So when the doorbell rang the night before, it was Liza in a hat pulled down so nobody would recognize her. And she said to Halston, give me every drug you've got. So he gave her a bottle of Coke, a few sticks of marijuana, a Valium, four Quaaludes, and they were all wrapped in a tiny box. And then a little figure in a white hat came up on the stoop and kissed Halston. And it was Marty Scorsese. He'd been hiding around the corner. And then he and Liza went off to have their affair on all the drugs. Now, when I first read it, I got to be honest, I'm like, I paid $9.26 for that story. I'm not sure that was worth it. Probably could have just gone and got a foot long from Subway. But here's the big question for you, Joe. Why would Glenn Kenny be so resistant to tell that story? Because he already made it clear in the book, anybody who's even read anything about Martin Scorsese knows he had a terrible drug addiction. He did so much cocaine. He wound up in the hospital. He was you know, on the verge of death. That's where De Niro gave him a copy of Raging Bull, and he decided to make Raging Bull, and so was the end of it. So is the embarrassing, is the too humiliating part the fact that <laughs> he was having an affair with Liza Minnelli, who was having an affair, and Liza Minnelli was also two-timing Marty with Barishnikov? Or is it the, the, the slight mention there that he kissed Halston, and is he insinuating that Marty's playing for both teams? What is it here? Oh, boy. I, wanna, I want to say the latter. I'm going to go with the latter of those two <laughs> options. Right? Because it has to be because the first part, like, if, why, why would Glenn Kenny be so opposed to saying, well, yeah, there's a section in there talking about how him and Liza Miller were doing a lot of drugs. I'm like, okay, I already knew that. Cocaine, quaaludes, got it. Yeah, marijuana, sure. Like, it's the 70s. And they had a lot of money and there was a lot of excess and a lot of drugs. Sure. There has to be that just because I thought, well, you know, whatever. Italians, Italian men kiss each other on the cheek. No big deal. But And it, it's not like italicized. It's not bolded. But the fact it does say a little guy showed up, kisses Halston, <laughs> and then does the drugs. Like, okay, may, maybe that's where Glenn Kenny was resistant to it. Um, I hope all of you are now satisfied who listened to that interview and wanted to know what exactly it was all about. Speaking of satisfying, that's what you often feel like when you watch an Aaron Sorkin movie. But I felt somewhat unsatisfied watching The Trial of the Chicago 7. It just debuted on Netflix. The story is this. In 1969, seven people were charged by the federal government with conspiracy and more arising from the protests at the 1968 Democratic National Convention in Chicago. How about this cast? Sorkin wrote and directed the story. Eddie Redmayne as Tom Hayden, Sasha Baron Cohen, Jeremy Strong, Yaya Abdul-Mateen, Mark Rylance, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Ben Shankman, and you also get a little sliver of Michael Keaton and Frank Langella. Unbelievable cast. And that's why this movie arrives on Netflix with lots of Oscar buzz. This script's been around for a while, and people have often said it was the best script that had yet to been produced by Hollywood. And it certainly has a lot of Sorkin trademarks. I mean, with that kind of a cast, and I tell you, Aaron Sorkin's doing a legal courtroom thriller. You say, oh my God, the guy who wrote A Few Good Men, I'm in. And there's a lot to like about The Trial of the Chicago 7. It's certainly impassioned. It's well-written, as you'd expect from Sorkin. It shows how these guys, who were literally protesting the war and protesting 
uh, unfairness in the world, in doing so with civil disobedience, how it was ridiculous that they were even being charged. And Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who's the lead prosecutor, doesn't even want the case. You know, he says, I don't, I don't care for these guys as people, but what they're doing is not a criminal activity. Yet he's put up to it by his boss, and uh, thus is the story. The first half I thought was a little leaden in terms of pacing. It's just a lot of courtroom scenes and a lot of dialogue. But I did think that the story picked up a little bit once you actually start flashing back to what these guys were doing. And Sorkin, as you would expect, is not the type to tell a strictly linear story. I think as a director, I don't think he's particularly anything to phone home about. His uh, shots are fairly static. All he cares about is the actors who are performing the dialogue. And the dialogue, as I mentioned, is always strong and the actors are very good. But it's not a very strong visual style. He's not bringing a lot of panache to the courtroom scenes, but at least the flashback scenes I thought were well edited and fairly zippy. Uh, the cast for themselves, the one that really stands out is Sasha Baron Cohen, who's clearly having a lot of fun, playing Abby Hoffman, just a ridiculous afro, one of these bon vivants that, you know, couldn't care about life and seems like he's rude and a ruffian and a vulgarian, but he's also a very smart guy and he's protesting the right thing. He's a lot more than just a wise-ass. And Sasha Baron Cohen proves that He's a really good actor, along with being also a very funny guy. Next week on Cinephile, by the way, hopefully we'll be reviewing the new Borat on Amazon Prime. Jeremy Strong, who I love because of my recent love affair with Succession, also very good as Jerry Rubin. I mean, he looks terribly ugly. He's got this awful beard, bad hair, bandana. Uh, but Strong is such a good actor, he really disappears into the role. Redmayne, a little bit different. Not sure if he was totally uh, the right choice. Maybe a little miscast, but again, good actor. I love Mark Rylance. He plays one of the defense attorneys. He's always great. And Langella, I thought, was particularly funny as the very steely conservative judge. Michael Keaton, one of my favorite actors of all time, only in a couple of scenes, but I don't want to say he steals the movie, but he is definitely impactful when he shows up. So you're saying to yourself, okay, this is a story about riots and civil disobedience, obviously very topical now with 2020, what's been happening with Black Lives Matter, etc. You know, why isn't this a bigger home run? And I'll give you the reason. It's because Aaron Sorkin, for all his good intentions, cannot avoid the fact that his material often feels self-righteous. I'd love to meet Aaron Sorkin and say, okay, I'm going to give you 30 minutes. Let's do 30 minutes. You and I are going to talk, and I want to see if you can be <laughs> avoid the following, being glib, self-righteous, pompous, or cheesy. Because no matter what, along with the true intelligence, and he's obviously a very bright guy, and he takes these complex thoughts and tries to distill it in very uh, entertaining terms, those attributes are still there. And that stench of self-indulgence is just something I can't get over. So while I'm watching Netflix, I'm aware that it's a good movie, but rather than a, a completely immersive experience, I'm always telling myself, God, this is such an Aaron Sorkin movie. And they all talk Aaron Sorkinese, and they've all got these big, grander ambitions than just trying to watch a good little movie. And the ending in particular, Sorkin is always susceptible to some cheese. This is one of the cheesiest endings uh, that he has definitely put on the big screen. I mean, just go ahead and get some mozzarella going, because I was rolling my eyes at the sequence where you don't want to be rolling your eyes, you're going to be cheering and the score is swelling to a crescendo. And I said, okay, Aaron Sorkin, it's a little much. Having said that, it's a good movie. I recommend it. Two and a half Maple Leafs. It's provocative. It's a good cast and it's topical. But if this is going to be a real Oscar heavyweight, then we're in trouble because I'm hoping for a lot better movies than The Trial of the Chicago 7 when it comes to the Academy Awards. This is the season now we start to get these types of movies. Again, if you're unaware, the Oscars pushed back from February to April. So October, you know, now it feels like August. You know, if you follow my timeline here in terms of the Oscar picks, normally you get October, November, December Oscar movies. Now you're going to get November, December, January, February Oscar movies. Having said all that, it's not one of Sorkin's best, and I think he can do better. Joe, what do you think? And, and I, I, I ultimately 
liked it and would recommend the movie. Um, first, I'll say this. I didn't realize that that was Jeremy Strong until about halfway through the movie. And well, then once I saw it, I just couldn't unsee it. And it reminded me of when Kendall falls off the wagon in season two of Succession. Um, but I liked it. The cast was great. And it, it's it, you, you bring up a good point because it'll be interesting to see the Oscar race for original screenplay this year with the lack of movies that came out because of the pandemic. And right now, I think a companion piece to this movie is The Five Bloods. And I wouldn't be surprised if either of those movies are both nominated for original screenplay. Yeah, the good news, Joe, I'm glad you brought up The Five Bloods. I was reading an article the other day trying to forecast the Oscars. It's very tough to do right now. And they said, you know what? Spike might get some uh, some heat here for The Five Bloods. So that's the good news. I mean, if you looked at right now, the Oscar is mid-October. That's the only truly excellent movie that's come out this year. So that's good news for Spike in terms of a, a screenplay nomination, maybe a directorial nomination, and definitely for Delroy Lindo, who I think has some serious heat. Hopefully, he'll at least get nominated for an Academy Award, if not outright win. So... Uh, we'll see. Let us know what you think of the trial of Chicago 7. As always, you can tweet me, Cinephile Pod or Adnan S. Verk. One more review, Wildcard, The Downfall of a Radio Loudmouth. This is about radio personality Craig Carton. Bunch of interviews with this guy. And listen, he was a terrific broadcaster. When I mean, you talk about a hot take artist and somebody who's funny and entertaining and outrageous, there's a reason why he and Boomer Esiason were number one. And it was all brought down by his insatiable gambling addiction. An illicit ticket-broking business brought his career to a halt. FBI arrested him. Convicted, began serving a 42-month sentence in federal prison of June of 2019. I believe he's now out. In fact, I know he's out. They have the documentary. They have him calling Boomer aside and saying, hey, I'm back. So I think he only ended up serving one year of his prison sentence. It's nothing due to COVID. Apparently just, you know, time served. He was a good boy while he was in there. So could have been three and a half years. I think he only ended up serving about a year. So that's the good news for him. But it is a harrowing story uh, about just avarice undone you know when you can't control your impulses and you've got too much money and too much time that's a recipe for disaster and the stories that carton tells about literally million dollar hands on blackjack which was his game of choice it's frightening to see because you know he realizes he was in the grips of this terrible addiction and had uh, no recourse to stop and you know drug addiction alcoholism sometimes that can be romanticized on camera you know sex addiction people think okay well that's kind of a joke but if you watch the movie Shame from Steve McQueen starring Michael Fassbender you realize how devastating sex addiction can be to a person and gambling I mean gambling is about as worse as it gets because it's like man you're losing all your money and everything's done in secrecy he'd hide out at midnight go gambling literally hop on a freaking jet a uh, helicopter excuse me helicopter to Atlantic City boom let me go blow a million dollars Fly back, do the show. Wife and kids have no idea. Absolutely terrifying. Uh, Vince Mancini, maybe HBO Sports Talk mentions are just my morning sports talk radio. Familiar and comforting in ways we can't entirely explain. Uh, the big thing is this, as John Serba says, I've decided that this softball endeavor reeks of access journalism and plays like an advertisement. He's open, he's honest, he's available for the afternoon drive shift if you're hiring. It does definitely feel like a bit of a mea culpa. You know, hey, I want to get back in the public eye, I want to get my old job back, great. I'll make a deal with HBO, I'll tell you everything I did, I'll apologize for it, and we move on. But the bottom line is this, as Richard Roper of the Chicago Sun-Times says, director, producers Martin Dunn and Marie McGovern know how to good story, they know how to tell it with Carton serving as the narrator of his own story. Maybe think a lot about Joe uh, owning Mahoney, that great Philip Seymour Hoffman film in which he played a Canadian banker suffering from terrible gambling addiction. It's just another reminder of how you can have everything going so well, but once you're caught in the throes of addiction, it can all go away. And Carton's stories of when he's actually arrested by the FBI once he knows the jig is up and interviews of Boomer Esiason and his co-workers, you often see this happen. You know what I mean? If... Uh, 
if someone close to you or me was ended up being uh, in prison, you'd say, I had no idea. I was around this guy all the time. He hid it from me. That's often what happens. People who are addicted are very good at hiding it. You'd have no idea. They're still excellent at their jobs. And Craig Carton was an example of that. He's paid his debt to society. He's going to get a job back now at WFAN. Hopefully, he can recover, rediscover his life and uh, stay away from this terrible, terrible addiction. I don't know if you've had a chance to watch it, have any ideas on it, but uh, that's my review of Wildcard. I give it three and a half Maple Leafs. Yeah, I mean, I didn't, I didn't, you know, grow up in New York, but I remember when this was happening a few years ago. It was all over in the news, and for it to happen to such a public figure, it's, it's like an old fable of flying too close to the sun. So, yeah, I wonder, you know, if he'll be taken back. I know uh, he's still a like personality by a lot of people, a lot of people I know. So, you know, I, I wonder if he can have his career back after this. Do you think he will? I think so. I believe that the deal is that he's going to come back, and they're going to give him another chance on the fans. So I think he's going to be the afternoon show. I believe that's that's the deal. So. Uh, we'll see what happens. The bottom line is this. It's, like I said, a sobering tale. We could all learn from it and hopefully uh, try to avoid the pitfalls that he went through. All right, let's do a little bit of entertainment news here for you before we uh, dive into the dinner interview. Our Mount Rushmore, our favorite directors. How about this cast? Biggest lineup of A-list talent since Steven Soderbergh assembled his Ocean's Eleven team. Netflix and Adam McKay are giving Jennifer Lawrence quite the group of co-stars to join her and Don't Look Up. Leonardo DiCaprio, Kate Blanchett, Jonah Hill, Meryl Streep, Timothee Chalamet, Ariana Grande, Kid Cudi, Matthew Perry, Tomer Sisley, and Hamesh Patel. Unbelievable. Wow. Uh, not much is known about the plot or premise of Don't Look Up, other than it focuses on two low-level astronomers who embark on a media tour to warn mankind of an approaching asteroid that will destroy Earth. Well, that kind of cast cannot wait. Netflix's Don't Look Up for Adam McKay. Also, Joaquin Phoenix. He's back, baby. Stanley Kubrick famously tried and failed to get a Napoleon movie off the ground. Ridley Scott's going to give it another shot. Joaquin Phoenix re-teaming with his gladiator director, Ridley Scott, Kitbag, an epic historical drama about the life of Napoleon Bonaparte. The movie's title comes from the saying, there's a general staff hidden in every soldier's Kitbag. Kitbag joins Mike Mills' Come On, Come On on Phoenix's slate of films following his Oscar-winning turn in Joker. Uh, the Napoleon movie is aiming to succeed where Stanley Kubrick's infamous Napoleon production failed. So we'll see if this actually uh, ends up getting things done. Eyes Wide Shut director famously failed to get a mega expensive Napoleon epic off the ground after the release of 2001. HBO has announced plans to turn Kubrick's Napoleon script into a project with Kerry Fukunaga attached to direct. So that's interesting. You'll get Ridley Scott's Napoleon, and maybe we'll get Kubrick's Napoleon on HBO with Fukunaga directing. And one more bit of news here. George Miller telling Deadline about Furiosa having a deep backstory in the Mad Max universe, and now we'll finally get to see it. Warner Brothers in advanced development with Furiosa, a spin-off feature of Miller's multi-Oscar-winning blockbuster Mad Max Fury Road about the renegade character played in the film by Oscar winner Charlize Theron. Wow. Standalone movie revealing the origins of Furiosa, played by glass actress Anya Taylor-Joy in the title role. Movie will attract the genesis of Furiosa. Uh, Chris Hemsworth, Yaya Abdul-Mateen, he's excellent. Man, he's everywhere. He was in uh, Watchmen, Trial of Chicago 7. Also starring in a way that Mitchell will also direct, co-write, and produce with his longtime Oscar-nominated producing partner, Doug Mitchell. So how about that, Joe? Thoughts on that unbelievable cast in Adam McKay's new movie, Joaquin Phoenix doing Napoleon, or the fact that you and I, both big fans of Mad Max Fury Road, we're going to get a spinoff? I can't wait for Mad Max Fury Road spinoff. I can't. If it's anything like the remake that came out a few years ago, it, it should just be visually stunning, just incredible storytelling. I'm so excited of all these three stories for that to come out. Yeah, by the way, George Miller was great. Our friend Jason Horowitz's podcast, Happy, Sad, Confused, you can check it out. He did a recent podcast with him. It was very, very entertaining. 
Uh, and Riz Ahmed, by the way, who I'm a big fan of, he was on Scott Feinberg's podcast, Award Chatter. Check that out. Riz was really good talking about his new movie coming out, which I also cannot wait to see. All right. In honor of our 150th episode, my favorite interview ever, one of my favorite people. As Sam Surface says, I'd lay down an oncoming traffic for him, the great Robert De Niro. Coming up after this. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. On June 3rd of this year, I met Al Pacino, and now on August 23rd, I'm meeting Robert De Niro. So now I can die in peace, meeting my two favorite actors in a three-month span. First and foremost, can I call you Bob? Sure. Thank you, sir. Um, I'm wearing my Tribeca Film Festival shirt because I saw Taxi Driver earlier this year, and it was an extraordinary experience to see that film again on a big screen in front of a huge crowd. But I'm always curious about personal passion projects, and I think about actors and festivals and it's really you and tribeca mm-hmm. and it's redford and sundance and you go back and you think about tribeca and the fact that you know you and jane rosenthal put this together to try to build up new york post 9 11 and it's become this roaring success you know we'll get into the movies in a second but where do you rank tribeca as far as your personal accomplishments well i i uh we started it after 9 11 and um uh i i'm very proud of it it's doing well it's been well received by people and I'm happy that it'll hopefully be a, a real traditional part of the city uh, fabric of the city for, for years to come. And I think that's the beauty of it is because like you said it's it's enriching film culture but it's also giving back to the city and, yeah. and no matter what people will always associate De Niro Tribeca and if that brings people and that it's also enhancing film culture it's adding to your legacy even though I imagine that's not really what your focus is. Yeah, it, well, I'm as I say, I'm very proud of it, and and uh, you know, Jane Rosenthal has been really the the, the driving force behind it, and uh, we started it together. But she and our whole team, um, they're really the ones who make it happen. I love the fact when I see again speaking of passion projects, the documentary you did about your father. Yeah, because the the public perception of Robert De Niro is very generous and loving and caring to those in his circle, but outwardly. Shy, quiet, keeps to himself. So to put a very personal film about your father, who, for those who don't know, was a brilliant painter, but in many ways underlooked. If you see Bob's film, he, he makes the point of how his dad probably didn't receive the recognition he should have. But to make that documentary, to put it in a very public form on HBO, what was the impetus for that? I always wanted to just do a, uh, a, a document his, his life uh, with the films that I had. There was a guy who used to follow him around, and we used some of it in the movie with a Super 8 camera, I guess, in, in the 70s. Uh, and then he uh, finally uh, got in touch with me. I, I was aware of him going around with my father from time to time. But then he got in touch with me, as I say, after my father passed away and uh, wanted to see if I, if I wanted the, the stuff, which I did. I think that I bought it from him. I thought he gave it to me, but someone reminded me that he, I did pay for it. But that's okay. 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All works out the end. Uh, yeah. So um, anyway, and then I, uh, though we didn't use as much as I thought we would, uh, I just wanted to, for the my kids, uh, my kids' kids, I wanted them who did not know much about my kids did my older kids of course but my uh my other younger children and even younger kids now did not know don't know anything about him i wanted them so i kept his studio i've taken them over to the studio to see it and then i just and i've always thought of doing a documentary and finally i said let me just do it at the prodding of actually jane rosal rosenthal saying uh, let's let's finally do this because there were contemporaries of my father who are in the documentary that uh, we were concerned would not be around at one point and it would be essential that they're in it and they are. Um, so that's how it started. And I, I didn't know how long it would be. I didn't know it would be an hour or two hours. It wasn't intended to be on HBO. Then they came and saw it and they said, would you be interested? I said, okay. Uh, and then it became what it became. Yeah, it's an extraordinary film because you feel like you're watching a home video. And like yeah. I said, it's it's a really important piece. And for those that really love Robert De Niro as much as I do, you should go out and watch the documentary about his father. It's on HBO. The new film is Hands of Stone. I watched it the other day. Um, what I was struck by particularly is the way that, you know, your roles have changed. And now the character of Ray Arcel, who plays this legendary trainer who, who trained Roberto Duran, you know, he's his mentor. He's his one looking yeah. out for him. And there's a wonderful scene about an hour into the film where he's arguing with his manager because they've mm. accepted the fight with Sugar Ray Leonard, the, uh, the follow-up fight. And he's saying, you know, you're, you're just so selfish. You're looking at this um, from the wrong angle. And if you, those who follow boxing or follow sports know how selfish the sport can be and how challenging it is. And I find there's lots of parallels with acting and with sports. What was it about Ray Arcel that, that got to you that said, I want to make this film? Well, I, you know, I didn't know him at the time. I met him once or twice when I was working on Raising Bull. Jake might have introduced you to some of the other guys in, the, in uh, at that time around Jake, around the you know, fighters and people in the fight game and so on. Um, and I was very impressed with him because he was quite dignified, you know. He looked like the, they'd call him a banker. He looked like a banker. He's dressed up very nicely, mm -hmm. very refined, uh, and uh, special, a special kind of demeanor that in, in trainers that we know of, you, you don't – it's not that kind of – they're not thought of in that way. Uh, he was he was special, so I hoped, and I then read some books about him, and then uh, talked to some people. Not everybody who I would like, or the people I missed, but his wife. I, I spent time with her, and she was great, and showed me pictures of them mm -hmm. over the years, and told me anecdotes and so on about him, and had a look at the script. And when she looked at some things in the script, she didn't like it. Other things, she said, "Okay." <laughs> Uh, the usual. It's 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 sometimes it's difficult because you you have to balance what the people will say. Well, that wasn't how it was, and and then understand. But understanding that this is, I know we always say it's a movie, but it is a movie, and sometimes things have to change. Hands of Stone, by the way, is in theaters this Friday. I encourage you all to check it out. A, a real education. Again, I like boxing. I don't know a ton about Duran. The one thing I would know is Nomos, and I won't give it away. But in the movie, they show that fight, and there's some conversation about that so definitely check that out talking right now the legendary actor robert de niro here on cinephile the adnan verk movie podcast we do a segment on, on the podcast here bob called scorsese stories i'm obsessed <laughs> with marty um our first son his name is yusuf yusuf rashan scorsese verk 
<laughs> Very rare you get, you know, a Pakistani-American with an Italian Catholic middle name. But that's the, the love we have for Marty. And my wife's pregnant with baby number three. If it's a boy, we might go with De Niro for the middle okay. name. So I hope you're okay with that. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's great. You think of the great combos in film history and Mastrioni and Fellini and Kurosawa and Mifune and Sidney Pollock and Robert Redford and you and Marty. And the eight films that you've made together, and, you know, each one to me has such strong power. And the stories behind it is great. You know, they used to call you Bobby Milk around the neighborhood, and, and Marty knew who you were, but you obviously didn't run in the same circles. But I have this picture here of Mean Streets, and this is something I keep on my desk, and it's yeah. you and, and Harvey Keitel. And it's, it just shows, like, the, the chemistry that you two have and the bond that you and Keitel had you know, extended off the camera as well. What is it about you and Marty that, that connected so well initially with a film like Mean Streets? Well, I, you know, I, when I was a kid, I'd see Marty around uh, with his group on one street, and then we'd be here. We had a few, maybe one or two, who would go go between the two groups mm-hmm. uh, and uh, hang with both groups. And <clears throat> and uh, but then, then I was told that he's at NYU and he's doing a, he's doing this play. He was doing Arturo Ui. This friend oh, yeah. went between and said he's. And then, <clears throat> so over the years, then I saw his uh, Who's That Knocking uh, with Harvey and Is That You, Murray, and some other th- things that he had done. And then a mutual friend of ours, a critic, uh, a film critic, got us together f- at a dinner one time, and we were talking, and I told him how much I liked the movies and so on, da-da-da. And, um, and then he was doing Mean Streets. So then we started talking. That was kind of after this dinner, mm-hmm. but and he had offered me like one of the the parts um, other than Harvey's who he that was set. Um, and I was trying to decide. I talked to him from time to time. Well, should I play this part? Should I play that part? And so finally, I settled on uh, the part that I played, Johnny Boy. Mm-hmm. Um, so did I answer the question? Oh, no, that's perfect. Yeah. So Johnny Boy becomes his character who. I, I mean, critics, they sometimes go a little deeper into these things. Pauline Kael's review famously really loved, you know, what you and Marty did and said that this is the birth of a great new filmmaker. As I mentioned, my wife and I went and saw Taxi Driver, the 40th anniversary of it. And here's what stands out to me as I have, by the way, Travis Bickle toy figurine oh, yeah. on my desk. <laughs> People always give me a second look. Why does this guy have a Travis Bickle toy figurine? But this is the, the amazing magic of Taxi Driver. I'm a Canadian guy, 38 years old. I was born in Toronto. I grew up in a small town. And yet I feel impeccably... You know, so impassioned about this film about a New York City cab driver that was made 40 years ago. Mm. And I think what it is is that, you know, people have connections to it, especially when I watched it again. It's really a movie, you know, for, for young men and particularly angry young men that you can really relate to feeling jilted yeah. and feeling upset by what Betsy does to him and the lack of connection that Travis has in the world. And, like, it's extraordinary to me, like, how the movie is so uh, universal, even yeah. though it's very specific. And I know you've often said it, it all began with Paul. It was Paul Schrader's story. He was hunkered down for 10 days and typed up the script. But what was it for you? Because Coppola famously told Marty, after you won the Oscar for Godfather 2, oh, this is going to help get this Taxi Driver movie made. And Marty said, we didn't think anyone was going to watch it, but it was ended up being a commercial success. We all liked the script. I forget when I read it. I read it <clears throat> sometime after I did Mean Streets. And um, we all just liked the script. Thought it was a terrific script. That that was there. And um, so it was easier to get it made after uh, Godfather 2. Uh, and um, we, uh, <clears throat> uh, I, I've, who can tell what a reaction will be to a film that nobody knows. Yeah. Um, but there was something like I, you can, I, I could even identify with being from New York, 
people all around in a city uh, identifying with being sort of disconnected as a young man. So as you say, you're from where you're from. I'm from where I'm from. I'm from New York. <laughs> Still, you know, it's about a, a guy from out of New York comes and is disconnected. You, yeah. can, you can feel that being anywhere or being right from the place. So, right. Um, I, that just struck a, a chord with everyone. I the original poster is amazing. It says, on every city, on every corner, on every street, there's a nobody who dreams of being a somebody. I'm a, yeah. That's about as good as it gets. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I told the story on, on that segment, Scorsese stories, about Raging Bull, which is my favorite movie, you know, for so many of us it is. And again, people focus on the fight scenes, which is only 10 minutes long, but they're extraordinary because, you know, Marty changed filmmaking with those. But the story behind it is that, you know, he was hospitalized. You went to him with the copy of Jake LaMotta's book and said, we've got to make this. And apparently Marty said, I don't, I don't like sports, Bob. You know that. I don't know anything about boxing. What, what, the hell, what are we doing here? <laughs> but, but you persuaded him. What was it about Jake's story, who's the ultimate antihero, and yet it's an incredible film? It wasn't. I was at a – he was sick and this and that, and we were – you know, it had been delayed for a while, the shooting put off for this and that. One reason is I wound up doing – uh, the Deer Hunter in between, but the the focus was always to do the movie. And then Marty was not well in the hospital and so on, and I just said, and things, I guess, were the way I remember it were just sort of not sure, but sure, but not, you know. So I said, Marty, if you don't want to do it, tell me, but, you know, I, 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 I've got to ask you because I want to do it. We want to do this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, so he said, yeah, I just, it just made him really think about Committing to it, which he did. A film that I think is so underlooked in your career with Marty, King of Comedy. That was ahead of its time, showing how celebrity-obsessed culture was. And Rupert Popkin, Marty, he said he thinks that might be your best role ever. Okay. Well, yeah, no, I had a lot of fun doing that. Again, Marty and I, uh, uh, he, he, there are some movies that I wanted to do more than he would. <laughs> and there are other movies that, that he'd want to do that I'm not crazy about. Or, but I'll do them because it, it, for, for him. Mm-hmm. So and, and um, that was one, one that Marty. I was remember trying to get him to do that and and so on and going over the script with him. And I love the script. So being on air, I always get scared when someone comes up to me. There's that great scene where the woman goes up to Jerry Lewis because I'm a huge fan. I just want to say hi. And he goes, "I'm sorry, I'm late right now." And he walks, which goes, "We hope you're rotten hell." <laughs> like, no, well, she said, <laughs> right. she said, uh, maybe that's what I can't remember. I haven't seen right. the movie. For- for a long time, but Jerry told us that story where he was about to go on in Vegas and he was at a just getting off the phone. Or so he was outside, a woman was there. Please don't just say, Oh, she was on a payphone, say hello to my son, my son. And then he and he's like, Can I gotta go? I gotta go. I gotta go. So he goes off. She says, You should get cancer. Or something. <laughs> this is the way people are. Uh, as we close up shop, Hands of Stone once again opening on Friday. We do a segment here, Bob, called Three Words. Can you describe Martin Scorsese in three words for me? Uh, lover of film. A fellow cinephile. That's about as good as it yeah. gets. Um, I wish we had more time to talk about movies. I love the comedies as well. Midnight Run and Analyze This and other films that you've made. But it's an extraordinary career. Uh, you've inspired us so much. I know this is... We, we cannot thank you enough for doing this, Bob. So we really appreciate no. it. And when uh, we have another son, De Niro middle name. All right. I hope you appreciate that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thanks for the time. Appreciate okay, it. Okay, okay. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. 
If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Mount Rushmore. All right, that was Robert De Niro. Once again, a legendary situation for me. I mean, probably the greatest American actor since Marlon Brando. He kissed my wife after on the cheek. She fainted. I mean, it hasn't touched her face since then. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I mean, just, just a kind, charming, genial man. Avuncular in a lot of ways, which is not the word you'd often think of to, to uh, describe Robert De Niro. Mount Rushmore directors, which someone had suggested, you know, you could do the greatest of all time in a very objective level in which I would get... Um, you know, Hitchcock and Orson Welles and John Ford and Howard Hawks and all the rest of it. But we're going to do this on a personal level. So our, our favorite directors is our Mount Rushmore today for me and Joe. Scorsese, obviously, I've talked about him ad nauseum. One of my kids is named after him. Like, come on, I, I could tell you all day about Marty. He's obviously my favorite director. And his, all of his films, I think, his very best films always come from his own id, right? Always come from his own passion, his own life lived. You know, I think very much when you're thinking of Mount Rushmore directors, you think of the Mount Rushmore of their films, so if I look at Goodfellas and Raging Bull and Taxi Driver, Mean Streets and The Irishman, I go, hey, those five films can stand up with anybody's. Uh, I think that all can also be said in many ways about my man Spike Lee, one of my favorite directors growing up. And definitely there was a dry spell. But if you look at Spike's best films, Do the Right Thing and Malcolm X, which had a huge impact on me when I was growing up as an adolescent. If you look at um, Black Klansman, if you look at Jungle Fever, Mo Better Blues. I mean, I love the jazz theme, although there's some uh, ups and downs of that movie. You know, Spike Lee brings it. Um, and even when you look at his more populist work, Inside Man is a very entertaining film, and it shows that Spike can make crowd pleasers as well. So Spike Lee, and listen, I never get to mention enough his documentaries. When the Levees Broke is amazing. Uh, Four Little Girls won an Oscar for it. Like, incredible. Uh, excuse me, Oscar nominated for Four Little Girls. So I, I think Spike's documentaries uh, also very, very profound, along with, of course, his motion pictures and Defy Bloods. Let's not forget a worthy addition to his career. Uh, those two were the easiest for me. Paul Thomas Anderson, definitely in the mix. You know, there's only one Paul Thomas Anderson film that I didn't love. That's Inherent Vice. I saw it once, and I said it should have been called Incoherent Mess. But when you look at his best films, and by the way, we're all allowed to have one or two missteps in life, right? When you look at his best films, like Boogie Nights and Magnolia and Punch Drug Love and Heart Eight and The Master uh, and Phantom Thread, I mean, just his talent is just gargantuan. And never is that more exemplified than in There Will Be Blood. Like, you watch that movie, and I think that's one of the greatest films of, of this century. Like, of the last 20 years, you watch There Will Be Blood, and you go, oh, my God, there's, there's something really epic in its sweep, and it's so gargantuan, and yet very personal, because Altman clearly influenced by guys like Scorsese and Robert Altman, and you see those influences in his work. And, by the way, great sense of humor. Along with these wonderful stories of very rich dramas, there's also some wickedly funny moments when you watch Boogie Nights, Magnolia, or There Will Be Blood. So those are three for me. 
After that, it gets a little tricky. You say Francis Ford Coppola. Yeah, of course, he's got a few great ones, but there's also Jack in the mix. Paul Schrader, I certainly love Autofocus and First Reformed and Affliction, but I prefer him maybe more as a screenwriter because the fact he wrote Taxi Driver and co-wrote uh, Raging Bull. There's been some missteps along the way directing-wise, but Schrader is definitely underrated. Uh, Akira Kurosawa, I've discussed before how Akira is very impactful for me. Anybody who's gone to film school knows about Rashomon and um, obviously all the, the Seven Samurai and his other samurai films are also very, very impactful. Throne of Blood, for example. Um, and Fellini is what I want to get in there as well, especially when I think of just eight and a half, because I think, you know, it's a movie about a creatively bankrupt guy, and it's so incredibly creative. So that's why I want to get Fellini in there. La Strada, which Rogowski recently reviewed on Rags Time. But honestly, I'm going to go with Sidney Lumet, because again, if I've got to go with the top four or top of the movie, I say, you know what? Sidney Lumet has given us the verdict, which is the greatest courtroom drama ever made, possibly Paul Newman's best movie ever. He's given us 12 Angry Men, which again, is a great courtroom drama. He's given us Serpico and Dog Day Afternoon, two of Al Pacino's most iconic, incredible performances. And he's also given us Network, which predicted the future, and cable news, and I'm being mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. And then he also gives us Before the Devil Knows You're Dead as his final film. So I think when you look at Lamette, like there's a handful of great, great movies that he made, and particularly enjoyable to me. So that's my Mount Rushmore of favorite directors. Martin Scorsese, Spike Lee, Paul Thomas Anderson, and Sidney Lumet. Joe? That is a great list. This is a hard, hard Mount Rushmore this week, but I'm going to go with, for my first, I'll get this out of the way, but Michelle Gondry, uh, I really like weird, odd movies, colorful movies, um, and I'm a sucker for practical effects. And so the way he shot, you know, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, Beacon Rewind, I think has to be one of the most creative films that I've seen. Um, and then after that, I will go with John Carpenter. I want to get a horror movie guy in there. Horror is my favorite genre. And John Carpenter, uh, you know, his, his catalog, I think, speaks for itself, whether it's Escape from New York, The Fog, Halloween, The Thing, They Live, Big Trouble in Little China with Kurt Russell is fantastic. So that will be my number two. Uh, I want to get an animation director on here, and so I'm going to put Hayao Miyazaki um and his entire catalog just being incredible, spirited away, my neighbor Toroto, um, Howl's Moving Castle, all of it is incredible. You could make a case for Walt Disney himself, but I would argue that, you know, the, Miyazaki is a huge extension of Disney. He had a big influence on him, so I'll put Miyazaki. And then my last one, and I'm not doing this just because they're from the Twin Cities, but the Coen brothers, I know that this is two people and not one. The Coen Brothers is my final directors on this list. The way they're able to shift from drama to like really quirky movies to really, you know, just odd, absurd, you know, comedy genre bending in a way, whether it's horror or crime or a comedy all in one. Um, no Country for Old Men is, I think, their masterpiece. And so the Coen Brothers, Miyazaki, Michelle Gondry, and John Carpenter are my four. I love it, Joe. I mean, movies are nothing else but personal, right? They have to be personal vehicles for which people can express themselves. And then you make a you know, communication with someone who actually feels those emotions. Your list is great for that because that, that, in many ways, I'm like, yeah, that's exactly the stuff that Joe will be into. Like you said, horror movies, Miyazaki, something different, animation, bold, adventurous, guys like Gondry. That's a really good list. I like it. You did not go with the, the classic list, as I mentioned. If we were doing all-timers, you know, you're going to mention Buster Keaton and we'll get to other names like that. A little surprised neither of us putting Christopher Nolan, who is certainly a great director. I'm sure people will tweet that at us. You can tweet us now, Cinephile Pod or Adnan S. Ferk. No Nolan mentioned by either of us. Uh, maybe some Clint Eastwood fans out there. 
Yeah, Billy Wilder's one of my all-time favorites. I mean, listen, I got like 10 favorite directors, so it's obviously very hard to narrow it down to four, but that was our best attempt. And by the way, one last note about Rags Time. My boy Scott Rogowski is the best. He's very, very busy right now, so Rags Time is going to be on hiatus. I can't give away what he's doing. He's kind of mentioned it the last couple of times in Cinephile, but he's working on a top-secret project, so he asked me if Rags Time can go on hiatus until at least Thanksgiving, and then we'll see if he can intermittently come by. I said, of course, I'm not paying you anything. You can come whenever you want. The chair is open. If you want to come, fine. If not... Please give us 56-minute reviews of uh, Greed. We look to get the review of that at some point. But that's where Rogowski is. And most of all, thanks to all of you. Seriously, thanks to Cadence 13. Thanks to Joe. Thanks to Chris Corcoran, uh, John McDermott, Hillary, this entire crew here. I can't believe that anybody ever let me uh, talk about movies ever and that anyone's ever actually listening. So it's a, a miraculous achievement. And for that, I owe all of you a big, deep-hearted thank you. Next week, we'll talk about Borat, the new Borat. That's right, Amazon Prime. Until then, I'll see you at the movies. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. When you make decisions for your company, you always look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing and shipping to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your process to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, books, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart if you sell online. Schedule package pickups through the dashboard and automatically see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers with rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are, even on the go. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other business decision makers with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com, code PROGRAM.